0: Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. A man and his wife came rushing up to a pastor after the close of the morning service and they were frantically excited about this terrific, unbelievable memory course that they had just taken part in. This seminar had showed them in their minds how to use word associations and other methods to recall information. And they just raved. It was terrific unbelievably enthusiastic. And so the pastor, he listened to them talk about the details. And the man's wife, she was nodding excitedly and as they're describing the workshops and everything that they took part in. So the pastor responded, obviously, I mean, kind of wondering where this was and who it was. So he says, who, who was the teacher of the seminar? Well, the man, he he looked down and put his finger to his lips and Looked kind of surprised that he'd even asked, and you could tell he was he was churning through his mind how to come up with that name, trying to use the techniques that he had just learned. Finally, he looks back at the pastor and he says, "What's the name of that flower that's red and it's got pink petals and thorns?" And the pastor says, "Rose." He looked toward his wife and he says, "Rose. W- what was the name?" <laughs> What what was the name of that teacher at the at the memory course? Uh, oftentimes our methods fail, don't they? Oftentimes our methods fall short. Even our methods that we try to employ for living the Christian life, right? We set up guidelines, we kind of at times try and devise a system that will work for us to help us be able to effectively live for Christ. Only to discover along the way, it's not working the way we thought it might. It's not coming together, it's not producing what we hoped ultimately it would produce. And the reality is, we need the truth But we also need God's design for living the truth. God has a plan. God's already laid out that plan. Our responsibility is to follow that plan. This is the theme in many respects of this small book of Titus. Here is God's plan for the church. And what I want us to note together tonight as we walk through this, is that it's essential for us to establish leaders and practices in the church that teach truth and encourage godliness. Increasingly, we live in a day where godliness is not necessarily encouraged, I think, the way Scripture encourages it. And I think we'll see that throughout this brief book of Titus. The theme of Titus is, in many ways, the organization, the function of the church, and the inseparable link of faith and practice, of belief and behavior. What you believe should impact the way you behave. And this is one of the themes that Paul brings out. Our manner of living, the way that we conduct our lives, it matters. And this is imperative for us to understand. It's imperative for Titus to understand as he tries to lead this church on the island of Crete. Paul is emphasizing the need throughout this letter for truth and godliness. The reality that the orthodoxy of our belief... The fundamental, foundational truths that we hold, they are supposed to change the way that we live. Those truths validate the message of God, the power of God, as we live them. And folks, many times in truth, if we are honest, we don't validate the truth of God by the way that we live. In reality, sometimes we invalidate it. Right, we, we, we make it seem as if it's not the case because of our fears at times, because of our struggles at times, the way we respond, even the way that we respond at times to one another. So part of this message is what we believe must impact the way we behave, the way that we live. Obviously, the author of this very brief epistle is Paul. The recipient of the letter is Titus, this pastor at Crete. And Titus, this book likely would have been written about the same time as 1 Timothy. Likely, Paul sits down to write Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, and then sits down and says, you know what? Titus probably needs some of this same direction, though specifically... um, directed towards the, the place where he's ministering, Crete. And so some of these things are, are different. Again, the, the time frame about the mid-60s, Paul is writing to Titus. He offers his purpose in verse 5, and it's fairly straightforward. Set everything in order. And we'll talk more about what that means in a minute. And the second part of setting everything in order is to appoint elders, is to appoint Pastors. Remember, elder pastor, same word. Those are synonymous terms. So he says, appoint pastors for the congregations of Crete. And this is vital because of the influence and the danger of false teachers. Again, Paul's going to address that. Verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, it's all an address about false teachers. Why? Because if false teachers get into these congregations, there's the possibility of ruining these believers, of leading them astray. So good leaders, good elders, good pastors are essential for these churches. And this is part of Paul's focus throughout. Key themes that come up in this book over and over again is the gospel naturally produces godliness and believers. If you are a genuine follower, a genuine believer, godliness will show up. Now, it doesn't show up in exactly the same way for every single one of us. It doesn't look exactly the same. All of our journey of faith does not look exactly the same. But the reality is this, if you truly know the Lord, godliness will show up. And we'll talk more about what godliness is in a minute. The second thing, the second reality, uh, theme that kind of comes up, theological truth. Actions prove or disprove one's claim to know God. One's claim of knowing God. So many people, and this is true today, many people claim to know the Lord, but what shows up in their life? What comes out? That's part of what Paul is going to bring up, even as he addresses the issue of false teachers. Number three, it's essential to have godly men serve as elders and pastors. And we'll look at that uh, at length next week. Verses five through nine really address that issue. Number four, true Christian living is a testament of the gospel to others. In many respects, if we will live out the truth of the gospel in our behavior, in our actions, it's almost like a message that declares the reality that these truths are right and they work and what God has said is true, you can trust it. Number five, right living has an important place in the lives of believers. Right living has an important place in the lives of believers. It matters the way that you live. And hopefully by this point you can kind of hear that theme. That's going to come up again and again and again. The way we live matters. Last of all, the necessity of clearly and firmly addressing doctrinal and moral error in the church. We have to remember that in the early church, there was this danger of somebody coming along and appearing to be gifted to instruct and lead the church, and in essence, potentially leading that body astray, leading that group astray. So Paul addresses this over and over and over again. He addressed it in 2 Timothy. He'll address it again here. Peter addresses it. Jude addresses it. But many times, one of the things that I want you to see, the connection of false teaching or the connection of, to false teaching is living. How do you live? How do you respond? How do you act? That is critical as a measure for whether or not you really believe. And if you don't, it's imperative in the church for that to be addressed. Now, Paul begins as he begins most of his letters, uh, every single one, some of them with a lengthier greeting and some of them with a briefer greeting. But again, he begins with this greeting. Verses 1 to 4 is that greeting. And Paul often begins with his position. He says what? I'm a servant. Literally, I am a slave of God. I work for him. He's the boss. And he goes on, he says, not only that, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been called by him for this purpose. What's the purpose? For the faith of God's elect. The faith is obviously the genuine response of belief. God's elect are simply those who have been, they are, or will be joined to Christ by faith. That is what Paul is describing here. The faith of the elect are those who have been joined to him because they believe. This is his statement. He goes on, though, and he says, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul is, in essence, stating his purpose as a minister. He says, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. This is my goal. My goal is to work for the faith of those who have believed to strengthen that. How is that faith going to be strengthened? through their knowledge of the truth that ultimately will lead them to greater godliness. So their knowledge of the truth is, obviously, their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the truth of the gospel and all that they have because of Christ. And and one of the things that's important for us to understand is sometimes we can think in our minds how many times are we going to talk about Jesus and his work and his sacrifice on our behalf? But folks, if you think about it, think about the message of Hebrews. When does the preacher leave that theme? He doesn't. And literally from chapter 4 all the way to the middle of chapter 10, he is telling us Jesus is your great high priest. And look at all that he's accomplished for you. His self-sacrifice is sufficient to pay the penalty for all your sins. And not only for all your sins, but for all the sins of all those who have gone before you. And all the sins of all those who will come after you. Jesus is sufficient, right? So think about that message. And part of what we need to understand and kind of in at least in my thinking, kind of blows my mind. That warning, if you remember in chapter 6 of Hebrews, remember what he says. He literally says, you are mature enough to understand these things. But you don't because you're not acting like you're mature. And then he gives that really hard warning. You 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 better wake up and grab this. This is that important. And what is the this? Chapter 7 to middle of chapter 10. It's this fleshing out of Jesus as our great high priest. And as we approach that, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking in my mind, really that's that's the most important thing? That's what the preacher's telling us. Yeah. For you to grasp this, it's that important. And you know what? It's a sign of maturity that you increasingly understand what Jesus has accomplished for you through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through his exaltation, through his taking his seat at the right hand of God. So that message, that knowledge is supposed to help us grow in godliness. Now, what is godliness? What is godliness? Now, for some of us, godliness and holiness, we can kind of combine those two terms and think of them together. But in some respects, they are not. Godliness is simply our view of, or, or even more importantly, our right response to God. That's it. How do you view God? And listen, if we're not careful, even as believers who know the Lord, Monday through Saturday, we can walk through our day in a very ungodly manner, right? Because we don't consider him. You can go through your entire day, get busy, do the things you need to do, uh, fulfill your responsibilities at work, fulfill your responsibilities at home, right, Maybe, maybe even help someone in the neighborhood, and do all of it in an ungodly manner because you don't think about God at all. You don't consider at all your response to God. Part of the motivation for Paul is that people of faith, believers, would grow in their knowledge and increase in godliness their view and response to god are we growing in that are you growing in your view and response to god we should as we engage the word that's what should happen my view of him should change even as we talked about a couple of weeks ago The word of God has the capacity to transform us like that. If you remember 2 Timothy, you remember the process? Teaching. Truly for you and I to change, what do we need? We need instruction. We need the word. That doesn't just mean here. That means personally. You personally need the word Monday through Saturday. Do you engage the word personally? Do you spend time personally in the word? By God's grace, we should. I hope that you do. As you do, God will grow you in his image, right? But that time in the word, that's instruction, that's teaching, that leads to reproof. That leads to you seeing, you know what? I don't think about God that way, or I don't engage God that way, or I don't respond to God that way. But I should. That's reproof. Correction is, I know that I'm not responding the way I'm supposed to. God give me grace to change. Give me grace to respond the way I'm supposed to respond, right? And then the last step is training in righteousness. That's the word we talked about this morning. This process of training. It's literally, the idea is child training. Uh, for all of you that have had children, how many times do you ch- tell a child something? Once and they get it. I, I remember one time hearing a speaker stand in a pulpit and say, I told my child this one time. Don't you ever, 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 ever do that again. I went home and I, I quoted exactly what he said. I said the same words. I said, don't you, and I quoted all of it. The whole thing. And my child looked at me and literally went and did what I said. I said, I did something wrong. I mean, uh, some, something went horribly wrong. How did he get that and I don't get that? Because that's not true. That's not child training. That that, that was an evangelistically speaking. That's exactly what that was. Because that's not how it works. Child training is over and over and over and over again. Listen to me. That's exactly what God's doing with you and me. And he does it through the word. Teaching, reproof, correcting process begins again. We keep going with the process. That's exactly Paul's point here. You and I grow in our godliness as we grow in our knowledge of who he is. It increases our faith. It grows our faith. It strengthens our faith. That's exactly what God is doing through the word, through faithful servants like Paul. Look what he says in verse 2. He goes on, in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie, promised before time began. So the knowledge is going to increase, and it's going to lead to godliness. Godliness in what? In this hope. This hope of eternal life. Listen, as a believer, at the end of all of it, and again, we've talked about this in Hebrews, but one of the greatest confidences that we have Even in the face of opposition, as we discussed this morning, the suffering in chapter 12, the discipline in chapter 12, the training in chapter 12 is opposition, persecution. Even in the face of that, what is our hope? Eternal life. There is coming a day where we will not be here. We will be with the Lord forever. That's our hope. And we grow in our knowledge and in our godliness toward that hope, anticipating that reality. And here's, here's the truth as Paul lays this out he says, Listen, this is something God has promised to you. And remember, God can't lie, He's not going to deceive you. Listen, if He says it, it will happen. Mark it down, it's done. Do we live like that? Do we live with that hope in our minds? He concludes in the end, he promised this before time began. This was the agreement from the beginning. Those who believe will enjoy life with God forever. What a confidence that we should and can have. Verse 3, he goes on, in his own time, he has revealed his word in preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So he says, listen, uh, there comes a point at which, or there has come a point in which, in human history, that this message is to be delivered. God called me to deliver this message. This is it. God's called me to deliver this message, not only to those who haven't heard, but to those who have heard so that they'll grow in godliness. And they'll grow in this hope of eternal life, realizing that God won't lie. This is the message. This is the plan of God. And in his divine time, God revealed his word, his plan, through preaching the truths of the gospel. And Paul obviously has been entrusted with that. And so now he transitions in verse 4 to his audience, Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, Uh, His other true son in our common faith. And he gives those two words, two words that we've looked at over and over and over and over and over again. If you look at Paul's epistles carefully, everyone begins and ends with grace and peace. Everyone. Some include grace, mercy, and peace, right? But they all end, end with, begin and end with grace and peace. And the reason is this. For Paul, grace is this one word summary of God's saving act. It stresses the reality of salvation as this free gift, but it also describes the source of strength that is available to you for everything that you are called to do as a believer. The godliness that the Lord wants you to grow in, He gives you grace to do it. He will give you strength to grow. So grace for Paul is a key. And more than in other epistles, when we get to chapter 2, Paul's actually going to lay out, kind of flesh out for us what grace accomplishes. He says grace actually trains you. Again, that's the same word that we looked at this morning. Training. It's the same word we just talked about in 2 Timothy 3.17. Or 316, training in righteousness, same word, grace trains you. That's why grace is so significant, and that's why Paul addresses every letter, beginning and end with grace, but not only with grace, with peace. Why? Because for the first time, for you as a human being, because of Jesus, you can be at peace with God. Formerly, as Paul reminds us in Romans, you and I are the enemy of God. Our sin sets us at opposition with him. We do not, we cannot have a relationship with him. We are enemies. But through Jesus, you and I can be at peace. What a gift. We can be reconciled to, to God through Jesus And all of this, all of this is encapsulated in both the name of the Father, God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus. And then Paul moves now in verse 5 to his purpose. Paul's assignment to Titus is, it fits a larger pattern that Paul used throughout the book of Acts, Uh, and we'll look at this pattern later on, but kind of a threefold pattern that Paul would use in his ministry. The first thing that he would do is he would go into a city and he would preach the gospel, and converts uh, would be made through that preaching. Now, what is fascinating, if you look at the pattern, Paul would often go to the synagogue. Why? Paul did not go open-air preaching. It's not that that's bad or good, but that's not what Paul did. Paul went to the place where he knew people were interested in religion. Paul went to the place where he knew people had ears to hear the truth of God. And so he would go into the synagogue. Paul, as a teacher, potentially by some Uh, that were in the synagogue, Paul may have been recognized. In in some respects, Paul may have been famous in Israel in the sense that he was taught by the great Gamaliel, right? He he had quite quite a history. He had quite an educational background, and so at times he may have been recognized. And in that place, Paul would declare the truth of the gospel, in each of those cities, when he did, people would hear and they would respond. When they respond responded, oftentimes Paul would be kicked out of the synagogue. That's step one. Preach the gospel, people are converted. Step two. Paul would then immediately begin to train and strengthen these new believers through discipleship and instruction. And if you remember, when we went through the book of Ephesians, I told you Ephesians is one of the few letters where Paul is not addressing a quote-unquote issue. Paul is not taking on a problem. Paul is not saying this is an issue with this or This is an issue with this. In essence, for six chapters for us, and obviously Paul didn't write it in chapters, it was a letter. So he wrote in paragraphs, right? But for those six chapters, Paul literally lays out here's the reality of the gospel. Here's what we have. Here's what God has done. Here's my prayer for you. This is what I long to see God do in your life. Chapters four to six here's how this practically looks in your home in the church, right? And I'm praying that God will give you grace as you wore this spiritual warfare. Remember chapter 6? So in essence, what we have in Ephesians, I think, is almost like an early church manual for training new believers. We don't have anything really specific. But Paul, in Ephesians, kind of gives us this layout. What is the church? How does it work? What does it look like? How does it function? What's your role in it? Where do you fit? Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, how does that look? How do we come together? Paul addresses all of that. It actually, in some respects, is a brilliant little manual for training new believers. I think Paul takes that model, in a sense, and he instructs new believers. After they're converted, that's his focus. His focus is not... His focus is not from that point necessarily to be preaching for converts. His point is to start to train these new believers. Why? Because as they engage, they'll engage others. Families, others in the community, others in the town. They may believe, they may come. When they do, well, guess what? Then you begin to train them too. So that pro- that's how it begins. First and second, converts, then train. What do we do with those converts once they're trained? They need church. They need a body. They need a place, a group to assemble with. That's step three. Step three is he appoints pastors, elders in every church to carry on this work after he's gone. Now, in a couple of these places, I think what has to happen is some of these elders they they have not necessarily been saved that long they they have not necessarily certainly received any kind of academic necessarily or theological training beyond what Paul has given to them and so Paul would send Timothy Titus These young guys that have spent time with Paul, that have heard Paul preach and teach and sat with Paul at dinner numerous nights for many months and gotten a lot of questions answered. Paul says, okay, you're ready. Go to Crete. Go to Crete and you manage, you answer these same questions that we've worked through together, right? says the same thing to Timothy. I trust Timothy, I'm going to send him. Timothy was sent to more than just Ephesus. If you remember in the middle of chapter 2, I think at the end of chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you at Philippi too. Why? Because I trust him. I really, from the time I've spent with Timothy, there's nobody that I would trust more to come and continue your training, to continue to disciple you and help you to grow in godliness. So I'm going to send Timothy to you, right? So this is his purpose, and this is the model. But with that model comes this inherent danger, and there always is this inherent danger with any pastor, elder, to some degree, depending on what they read, depending on what they pick up. I've known many, many men who pick up a book, and it kind of becomes their defining piece, right? From that day forward, that's their soapbox, and they get on it every chance they can because this book just reshaped, reoriented, reoriented everything they think and everything they believe right and so everything from that point forward kind of swings back to that topic and in truth all of us could do that there is a danger of that for anybody and everybody but that's why we have to keep driving back to the word what's the word telling us what's the instruction the word is giving to us and how do we respond based on the word and that's the model. And that's what Paul wants Titus and Timothy to go and model, go and guide with these pastors that they put into leadership in these churches. So very likely, very likely, what happens at Ephesus, what happens at Crete is we have house churches. There are probably about 20, 25, 30 people. And guess what happens when you get to that? You're getting too big for the house. You've got to split Okay, go two blocks down, take 10 people, and you guys go over there. We'll keep going here, but we've got to have another elder. So there's training that's got to happen so that we can appoint another elder, right? So we can appoint another pastor. This is the goal. This is the process. This is how the early church multiplied, truly exploded and turned the world upside down. It was just these little congregations that kept multiplying and moving and growing, et cetera, et cetera, all right? Now, some perceive that in the church at Ephesus, you have a plurality of elders or a pastoral staff, in essence. I don't think, looking back, that there's any warrant, any reason to even make the argument that we have one giant church at Ephesus. That's not what Paul's talking about. Literally, what Paul means is all these little house churches, they knew one another. They knew believers that met in a different house church. They loved each other that were in different house church. There wasn't this competition, right? I wasn't trying to get people from that house church to come to mine. No, it didn't work that way. These folks worked in cooperation with one another. But part of that was for Timothy, Titus, to, in essence, manage, oversee these individual pastors, shepherds, so that they didn't lead that small group astray, which could be a possibility, which is why Paul warns over and over again against false teachers, right? Okay, so Paul's instruction first set things in order. I think what he is addressing is the third step. We need to kind of formalize the group of converts, and we need to start appointing elders. So we have converts. We've done some training. Now we need leaders. We need to be able to set them up. And those are the instructions I think that Paul is giving to Titus as he goes to this church at Crete. So, a significant part of setting this church right, of putting it in order, is to establish godly leaders that can help guide these believers, these house churches that make up the larger church of Crete. The word appoint here in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. This is a word that appears in some respects in parallel situations with churches who are installing in, a, in an official capacity other church leaders. For instance in Acts 6 when we have deacons they are appointed similar ideas. So the church to some degree is involved in this process of affirming of, of in a sense legitimizing an individual's call. And the reason that's important is this, uh, down through history, if we're not careful, you can almost create a pastoral good old boys network. And what happens with that is you have a guy who says, I'm called, and the church, right, the people who sit in the pew and have to endure him prattling on, right, they, they would not affirm that because it, it's torture. It, it Truly, he's not gifted to explain the words of God to God's people. But the people, because of the good old boys network, what, do, what can they really say? He goes through ordination. He's affirmed in that. He stands in front of the congregation. And what are they going to say? Is somebody in the congregation going to jump up and say, please, no, don't do that to us? No, probably not. But that is why in the early church, there is this affirmation. The church is saying, this guy is gifted. Many, many years ago, there was a pastor in Texas. The the church's pastor resigned, left, and this guy was just a gifted teacher. And so the church had a meeting to decide who should be the pastor. One, One of the older gentlemen in the congregation stood up and said, that guy. That guy should be our pastor. Well, he was a lawyer at the time. He said, no, 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 no. I have a job. I, I, I can't be the pastor. I don't want to be the pastor. And somebody seconded the motion. They said, no, yeah, we agree. He should be. Right? And so the church is discussing it. And he's sitting there saying, I, I, I can't be the pastor. I don't want. I, I, I have a job. The church collectively affirmed. You are gifted and should be our pastor. So he said, okay, I'll I'll think about it. I'll I'll pray about it. Well, God affirmed what the church had already said, right? You're you're gifted. You should be. And he actually became a renowned pastor a hundred years ago. Why? Because the church said that guy, he's got the gift. That's where the church comes in. So the church is involved in this, and that's even where the idea of a congregational model of of, um, rule comes in. The church is affirming this. Now, it's not necessarily that the church is identifying. Paul did not say to Titus, go to Crete and make sure they pick out the right guys. He didn't say that. He said, train the right guys. And once you train them, what will the church do? they'll affirm yes yes that's that's the right guy right because when he explains God's word it makes sense and we understand what we're supposed to do and we understand how we're supposed to do it and the way that it's supposed to change our lives so the church is affirming this but Titus is sent with the job of appointing these and so this process involves the church recognizing a need We have a need. Number two, the church leadership then calls on the congregation to recognize and select candidates. We have a need. Who can help with that need? Well, the church is involved in saying, hey, this guy could help. This guy's gifted. Number three, the church then leadership prays and they lay hands on candidates to install them. And to some extent, I think once that training is done, that's part of the process. Part of the process is to make certain that those who are selected truly are ready. But the purpose for Titus is to go and install qualified leaders that can truly lead in this critical moment of the church when they could be led astray by false teaching. Go and set up leaders that can guide the church. So hopefully you can see as we walk through that, it's essential for us to establish Leaders and practices in the church that teach truth and encourage godliness. That's the role of the shepherd. That's the role of the pastor. That's the role of the elder, is to teach truth that helps lead to godliness. Many years ago now, some of you may uh, know this name. I think you pronounce it, Thomas Moynihan. He was the founder, president, chief executive officer of Domino's Pizza. Now, whatever your impression of Domino's may be, during his tenure, uh, it grew rapidly. From 1970 to 1985, Domino's grew from this small, small, Debt ridden little pizza chain to the second largest pizza company in America with sales at one point in 1985 sales over $1 billion. That's a lot of dough and a lot of cheese and a lot of pepperoni. You know what I mean? In 1985, a billion? That's a lot. When he was asked to account for this really phenomenal growth of the company, he said, I programmed everything in the company for growth. And they said, Well, well, how, how do you how do you program everything for growth? How do you plan everything for growth? He said, Every day we develop people. The key to growth is developing people. Now get this, he's a pizza company. He said, It's not special cheese. It's not a tasty crust. It's not fast delivery schedules. It's people. Develop people. People are the key to effective leadership. And that's still true. It's always been true. It will always be true. So how are we, how are you developing for the ministry? Folks, many times we hear a story like that. We think, man, that is amazing. Wouldn't you love your business to do that? Folks, listen to me. That's the way the church is supposed to function. Are we, will we function like that? By God's grace, by God's grace, we can. By God's grace, we can.